Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Drive Under the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, your host, coming at you with a solo episode, and we're going to call this one Story Time. So we're only about two weeks away from the start of the Pistons' preseason schedule, or rather will be two weeks away when I post this episode tomorrow on Wednesday. Uh, They'll open preseason, I believe, October the 4th against the New York Knicks. Definitely excited for that. Next two episodes will be season preview material. Uh, But for this one, I wanted to answer an episode request from a longtime listener. And I guess we'll call this some unpleasant Pistons history. (laughs) So we're going to be going over the Stan Van Gundy era of the Pistons. And my goodness, do I not like saying that name. Uh, Rarely has anybody in sports made me as upset as Stan Van Gundy, uh, just watching him mangle the Pistons. So uh, a couple notes. Well, just one note in particular. We'll go with that. Uh, I have promised not to talk about Andre Drummond in the past. And I continue, you know, I I intend to keep that promise when we're talking about present day NBA. Now, of course, for the sake of this story, I do need to talk about that guy. And uh, I kind of cannot believe that I'm actually doing this episode because this was on the whole, a really, really unpleasant era of the Pistons for me. But who knows, maybe this will be an exorcism of the angst I still have left over from it. So, uh, just to give a little bit of additional backgrounds before we get to the Van Gundy era. So uh, the Pistons, or Van Gundy took over from Joe Dumars. Joe Dumars, who had been the architect of the Pistons championship team, the 2004 roster. But at that point, had really let the Pistons stagnate up until 2008, at which point it was clear that the going-to-work core, uh, Ben Wallace was gone by that point. He left for the Bulls in 2006, but the other four were still around. Chauncey Billups, Tayshaun Prince, Rip Hamilton, and Rasheed Wallace. But it was clear come 2000, come the start of the 2008-2009 season that, that that core's window had closed. It really didn't help that Dumars had done a really poor job of keeping it stocked with depth, had done a, a really poor job of drafting, which he would continue to do. And But it was, you know, it was clear that the Pistons should do something uh, if they wanted to rebuild on the fly, for example. And, and definitely the Pistons were not going to uh, just go and tank at that stage. So... Unfortunately, Dumars went about it in a horrible way. And for the next four or five seasons, you know, between 2008, that was five seasons then, and when he was fired in 2014, he was undoubtedly, well, I would say almost undoubtedly, the worst executive in the entire league. So he made the big mistake, the first big mistake he made was trading away Chauncey. So he traded away Chauncey for Allen Iverson. It was a cap dump. Allen Iverson only had that year remaining on his deal. He made that deal about, I don't remember less than 10 games into the 2008-2009 season. And so the idea was that, sure, we send out Chauncey, who recently had signed a big contract, and we just let Iverson's contract expire, and we go from there. Now, trading Chauncey was the wrong move. This was a terrible idea. Chauncey was really the leader of that team. He still had a lot of good basketball left in him. And, yeah, this is not what you do. You trade Rip Hamilton, for example. If you want to to cap them, somebody, you do that. Instead, they trade Chauncey. You know, you lose really the the leader of your team, the point guard for your team. And Chauncey would go on to have some great years in Denver. Uh, Meanwhile, you also really alienate Rip Hamilton, who was pretty pissed off about that trade. So in any case, you bring in Iverson, who was predictably a a complete ass. And yeah, like a friend of mine (laughs) told him, I heard it from a friend of a friend, uh, that Iverson got banned from multiple Detroit area casinos, one of them. Uh, for just urinating in a plant uh, right in the middle in front of everybody. I can't confirm that, but it sounds quite like him uh, from everything that I've heard. Nonetheless, I digress. Yeah, so things really obviously didn't work out for for Iverson uh, with the Pistons. I mean, he wasn't meant to stick with the team, but it was definitely an unpleasant year. 
All right, so the Pistons get to 2009, and Dumars was always of this mentality. Like, oh, I have cap space. I have to use that cap space. So he signs Charlie Villanueva and Ben Gordon to, to really big contracts. Both of them were terrible ideas, just just awful. And, uh, you know, in addition, you piss off Rip Hamilton even more by signing Ben Gordon. Whatever. So uh, the years go on. Dumars drafts poorly. The Pistons are constantly stuck in the sort of mid-lottery purgatory. Dumars still isn't drafting well. Uh, his best draft uh, of his entire career is in 2012 when he takes Chris Middleton, whom he subsequently just gave away to Milwaukee in a bad trade that I'll talk about in a minute, and Andre Drummond, who will be a key member of this story. So I should mention an important event that happens in the middle of the late, we'll call it late stage Dumars, in which he was particularly bad. I'll be honest, I have a very controversial take on this. I think that Dumars caught lightning in a bottle when he assembled the going-to-work starting five, and that he benefited from the fact that they were far more than the sum of their parts. And I, I don't think he was ever a particularly good GM. I think in a way that he just got very fortunate. He, he wasn't incompetent by any means. I mean, he did, it, I think, you know, on paper, he did a great job in building that team. But I think that that overrated his capabilities a little bit, or actually quite a bit, as we would see after, you know, from the time of the Chauncey trade onward. But uh, so an important event came in 2011. Now, Bill Davidson, the longtime owner of the team, who had been around, who had been the owner for all three championships and had privately financed uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills. It was the first privately financed NBA arena. So he died in 2009, and his widow, Karen Davidson, decided to sell the team. Now, there was some talk about her selling to or selling the team to Mike Illich, who's the owner of the Red Wings and the Tigers. It's unclear exactly what happened to make that fall through. There is one report that he was on the verge of buying the team for more than $400 million in, in $2011 and then found out that the team's valuation had been inflated and he got furious and backed out. That has never been confirmed. Nobody really exactly knows what happens, but it knows what happened rather, but it just didn't come to fruition. So in steps, Tom Gores, uh, who's a very, very successful venture capitalist, and he comes in and buys the team for $325 million, about $428 million in, in today's currency. And now the team, of course, is worth well over $1 billion, thanks in, in part to Steve Ballmer, whose enormous offering to buy the Los Angeles Clippers really inflated the value of every NBA team. Also made, incidentally, Michael Jordan a billionaire because the value of the Charlotte Hornets went way up as a result. But yeah, so Tom Gores comes in. And as we all know about Gores, for a long time, he was not a very good owner. Uh, he had this idea that you could just win with a winning culture, so to speak. You know, it's just like, let's focus on winning. We'll keep winning. We'll get better. The culture will get better, and we'll just continue getting better. And while a winning culture is very important, you can't make that work without the talent. Uh, so that that really became an issue in terms of, I mean, he just he was constantly meddling. He, that director was constantly handed down. The Pistons were not allowed to really rebuild. And it was always win now, win now, win now. But we'll talk about that later. So uh, Dumars' ineptitude really reached its apogee in the 2013 offseason. Now, he was, his employment was on the rocks at that point. I mean, obviously, Tom Gores, who really wanted the team to win, was losing patience with him. It was clear that the Pistons had to make a substantial turnaround or Dumars would be out of a job. So he goes on and has one of the worst offseasons, I would say probably, well, in modern Pistons history for sure, and definitely within like the last 20 years, no doubt about it, maybe the worst, almost undoubtedly the worst. The only one that could possibly compare was his own 20, 2009 offseason when he signed Ben Gordon, Charlie Villanueva. 
So what does he do? Uh, first of all, he goes out and trades the final year of Ben Gordon's contract, trades away a protected first-round pick to do it. And that first-round pick would convey in 2014. So then, like right after the, the opening of free agency, he signs Josh Smith to the largest contract in team history. And in order to have Josh Smith play small forward, this was basically just a case of, oh, hey, this guy's available. He's pretty talented. I'm going to sign him to a big contract, even though he doesn't fit this team at all. The Pistons at that stage were going to be fielding Greg Monroe and Andre Drummond, two non-shooters. And Josh Smith had no business playing small forward. I mean, the, the best situation for that guy, like his best situation in Atlanta was just playing a power forward and don't have him shoot anything. Just have him only take shots close to the basket, which was viable for a power forward back then. Unfortunately, Dumars signs him to play small forward. So that's terrible. I mean, and Josh Smith had been a strong defender, but he, he got a real case of the I don't cares when he got to Detroit. And then what does Dumars do? So he goes on and he trades Brandon Knight, who was a bad pick. I mean, the guy just didn't have it in him to be a point guard. and didn't have the, the basketball IQ. He didn't have the court vision, didn't have the passing acumen. So he trades Knight. He packages him uh, with uh, in a very unfortunate act, just a very bad decision with Chris Middleton, who Jumars had drafted in the second round in 2012. And uh, Middleton ended up being the best player Dumars had ever drafted. But... Yeah, so he ended up in that trade. And they trade him, the two of them, for Brandon Jennings. Brandon Jennings, who had really peaked in like the first few months of his career and had from that point really just been a no-defense chucker. Just took a lot of shots, was not efficient, really bad on defense, and, and pretty selfish. So Dumars has united one of the worst shooting lineups ever. Like he has KCP, whom he had drafted in 2013. Yeah, 2013. So KCP is a rookie there. So you've got Brandon Jennings, who's a chucker. And you've got Josh Smith, who's a horrible shooter. You've got Monroe, and you've got Drummond, who don't shoot. And KCP is largely an unknown. No, he'd been a solid shooter in the NCAA, but he never got it together in the NBA. Well, not, he never got together with the Pistons, rather. Uh, he went on to be, he's gone on to be a pretty good shooter. And he played an important role on the Lakers 2020 championship team. In any case, so this is a terrible roster. And that five-man lineup would go on to be like one of the absolute least efficient rosters in, in terms of true shooting percentage in the last 15 years. It was just awful. The team was a complete disaster. <clears throat> I haven't even talked about the rotating carousel of coaches, none of whom, you know, none of whom were good, but you know, that was, that was another issue, but I don't think any coach could have gotten much out of the teams that, that Joe Dumars was fielding. So Dumars gets fired before the 2013-2014 season ends. And then we go into the offseason. Need a new coach. Need a new GM. So we've got Stan Van Gundy, who had been quite successful as the coach of the Magic and had really been one of the pioneers of the four-out offense. He had Dwight Howard and then just four shooters around him. These are not very good rosters. Van Gundy got a lot out of them. He had done well as the coach for the Miami Heat as well. Uh, the Pistons had defeated at his Heat in 2005. He was pushed out after that. It was Pat Riley who was the coach of the Heat when they won and what I think is still, I'm not a sports conspiracy theorist, but goodness gracious, let's look at in 2006 when Dwayne Wade, you couldn't touch the guy without getting a foul against the Mavericks. It was ridiculous. Whatever the case, he was the coach when the, when the Miami Heat won the championship in 2006. That was Pat Riley. And Stan Van Gundy ultimately moved on to Orlando. So you've got Stan Van Gundy. And both the Pistons and the Warriors are, searching, you know, are, are seeking his services. They both want to sign him. And then 
Stan Van Gundy says, well, I want personnel control. And Tom Gora and the Warriors say no. And Tom Gora says, oh, absolutely, 100%. You got it. So basically, there should be a statue of Tom Gora's around the Warriors arena. I believe it's uh, Chase Center now. Yeah, used to be Oracle Arena. So yeah, there should be just like a, a statue made all in silver of Tom Gora's because he was a big part of the Warriors ending up the team that they became. Steve Kerr is a brilliant coach, especially in offense, like drastically better than Stan Van Gundy. What would you have had if you had Stan Van Gundy coaching the Warriors? The guy wouldn't have had a clue as to how to how to pull all that personnel together and make them their best possible selves and run an offense that absolutely maximized them. We'll probably have Steph Curry just running a zillion pick and rolls with Andrew Bogut. So in any case, great for the Warriors, not so good for the Pistons. So Stan Van Gundy comes in. He has full personnel control. Uh, one of his very unfortunate first acts is deciding not to trade Josh Smith. Now, you might say, who could possibly have wanted Josh Smith with the absolutely terrible season he had in 2013-2014? And just the really awful contract he was on, one of the worst in the league. And if you got to think of the teams who might be interested, you know who I'm about to say. It's the Sacramento Kings, because their owner, who is probably the worst owner in the entire league, in terms of just how he conducts the team and, and just badly, just awful. He's, he's an awful owner. He just, he constantly meddles in the worst way. So he wants Josh Smith. He likes Josh Smith. So the Kings offer a package of Carl Landry and, J, Carl, excuse me, Carl Landry and Jason Thompson. And there's just a couple of power forwards who aren't very good, but it's a drastically lesser salary load. I mean, these guys the amount of salary that they will count for against the cap in terms of just total salary is drastically less than what Josh Smith is owed over the next three years. So Stan has this golden opportunity to trade a locker room cancer who's on a terrible contract. And he says no, because he thinks he can make this, he thinks he can make Josh Smith work. He thinks that he can make the, the trio, the big man trio of Josh Smith, Greg Monroe and Andre Drummond work. Uh, however, he doesn't play that trio together, which was a good idea. Uh, unfortunately, he decides to bring Monroe off the bench, and Monroe, who was excuse me, was a restricted free agent at that time, took the incredibly, incredibly unusual step of signing the qualifying offer rather than taking a big contract extension with the Pistons. There has been no player since who has done that. I mean, generally, if a player is in in line for a big second contract with the team that drafted him, he takes it. Period. Like no frills. Hardly anybody. I, I don't remember the last time. It's aside from Greg Monroe that a marquee restricted free agent has taken the qualifying offer. The qualifying offer means that you just, it's a smaller salary. It's just that basically you, the team tenders you the qualifying offer in order to make you a restricted free agent. And then usually they sign you, but a player can just say, I'm going to take the qualifying offer and then I'll be an unrestricted free agent next summer. And that's what Greg Monroe did. So back to Josh Smith, Van Gundy, not only doesn't trade him, oh, basically Monroe, he was probably his days were numbered anyway, but you know what? You sign the guy and then you trade him. You don't lose him for nothing. So, you know, you trade him on down the line, you know, six months, or excuse me, this would have been, uh, you know, January 15th of the next year. You can see you're, you're able to trade the player, trade him then, you trade him the next summer, whatever. So not only did Van Gundy not get rid of this horrible contract or this locker room cancer, and not only did he alienate Greg Monroe, he also decided that he was going to make Josh Smith who is who is just a terrible offensive player, the center of the Pistons' offense, which was a comically, comically, comically bad idea. So the season starts. Smith is horrendously bad. The team is terrible. At, and after a 
like a, I believe it was a five and twenty-eight start. Nobody wants Josh Smith. Not even the Kings. Like even the Kings do not want the guy anymore. So it's near Christmas of 2014, and Stan Van Gundy makes the decision. Okay, we're going to just wave Josh Smith. You know, we'll just wave him and stretch him. You know, stretching means that you're basically you stretch the rest, the remainder of the salary across a number of years equal to the remaining years in the contract plus one, and you equally divide the remaining salary across those five years. So it ended up being around $5 million. And this was the biggest non-compliance buyout in the history of the league. And the Pistons <laughs> coincidentally have the two biggest non-compliance buyouts in the history of the league between Blake Griffin and, uh, and Josh Smith, you know, the two biggest in history, whatever. We'll come to Blake Griffin later. So Josh Smith is gone. Uh, the Pistons immediately go on this amazing run. They're 12-3 and three over the next month. And Brandon Jennings really comes alive. It's a little bit a little bit more than a month, I believe. So Brandon Jennings really comes alive and just becomes the leader that the team needs. I mean, his, his performance tremendously improves, both as a shooter and as a passer. Uh, all the rest of the team, I mean, DJ Augustine is the backup point guard. Van Gundy signed him. That was a good signing. Uh, Van Gundy had also traded for, for Anthony Tolliver, traded uh, Tony Mitchell. Yeah, that was also good. Tolliver would go on to be a good role player for the Pistons. And everything comes together. Just everything comes together. And the Pistons just go on this magical run. And they're one of the best teams in the league. And it's super exciting. This is what brought me back to the Pistons. And it's just great. I mean, it's the feel-good story of feel-good stories for the Pistons. Like, after all that the fans have suffered through over the previous, you know, like, six years. It's, it's just awesome. And, you know, like, the Pistons are back. Awesome. It's fantastic. I just I can't say enough good things about it because it was such a fun time. And then, unfortunately, Brandon Jennings, around the beginning of February of that year, uh, he's contesting an inbounds against the Bucks, And you just see him fall down. And at that moment, I was like, okay, there, there goes his Achilles. And that, that was what it was. And we all know Brandon Jennings was never the same after that. And Achilles injury is one of the hardest to come back from. You know, you're almost certain to lose a good degree of your agility, your explosiveness, whatever else. If you're Kevin Durant and it happens, you know, and you're just a brilliant shooter who's not dependent at all upon being particularly agile or particularly explosive, you're fine. It also helped that it was on his non-dominant foot, but the vast majority of players, it's really going to put, really going to harm your career in the NBA. So that really obviously put an end to that run. And it, it was clear that the Pistons season was over at that stage. I think there had been some pretensions that they could keep winning and make the playoffs, but it was never going to happen after this point or after that point. So DJ Augustine takes over his point guard. The backup point guard, interestingly enough, is Spencer Dinwiddie, who had been Stan Van Gundy's pick in a second round pick in the 2014 draft thanks to Dumars trading away uh, their first round pick Stan Van Gundy in 2014 in order to dump Ben Gordon and sign Josh Smith uh, Van Gundy didn't have one in 2014 and I believe that that pick was ultimately used on Noah Vonway for what that's worth anyway so you got DJ Augustine you got Spencer Dinwiddie who was the best player Stan Van Gundy ever drafted and you know that the team that's left, I mean, you lose Jennings, whatever, and, and the Pistons have really caused lightning, in a, excuse me, caught lightning in a bottle, and that was it. So about four weeks later, Van Gundy goes out and trades with Reggie Jackson. So Reggie had been a backup point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He was not happy there, and he forced his way out in just like this super, super, super unprofessional way, like basically pretended to be injured early in the season, uh, just made it very, very clear that he wanted out. 
and it was just completely selfish. All of his teammates came to hate him, just absolutely came to hate him, which is not usual. And he made it clear that he only wanted to play for a team that would make him the primary option. I mean, he was very, very high on himself at the time, I'll put it that way. So he became available. And because of the way he had forced himself out, because everybody knew that he only wanted to play for a team on which he would be the primary option, because hardly anybody was willing to give him that, he came cheap. So Van Gundy got him for DJ Augustine, Kyle Singler, and I believe a couple of second-round picks. So Reggie Jackson, promising point guard. Absolutely. But there's kind of the issue, you know, what people say about a partner. It's like if they'll cheat with you, they'll cheat on you. It's like that kind of applied here, basically, that the reason you were able to get the guy was that he forced his way out in a super, super unprofessional way. And that very same ego and self-absorption was almost certainly going to be an issue for your team, too, when you're bringing him on. Whatever the case, uh, you know, the rest of the season elapses. I mean, there's a lot of personnel changes amongst the role players. Uh, Greg Monroe is injured for a stretch at the end of the season, and the Pistons do much better with Anthony Tolliver at the position instead. You know, you've just got much more floor spacing. And season ends. Pistons are the eighth worst team, I think. Whatever, they would go on to pick number eight in the draft. So in the offseason, uh, you know, first comes the draft. So uh, the Pistons, you know, you look at them, what do they need? So you've got a prospect of starting lineup, of course, of Jackson, of Andre Drummond, who at this point is seen as the Pistons' future franchise player, though he's still got a lot of gaps in his game at that point. Still a terrible free throw shooter. Still really bad scorer in terms of efficiency. Just in terms of his touch, that would never improve. And just very, very raw. But at that point, traditional centers were still a big thing. Their downsides weren't nearly as big. People said this guy is just physically amazing, and he was extremely athletic for his size. And, uh, you know, and is super strong, you know, physically speaking, and not so much mentally speaking, but again, we'll get to that. And so, yeah, he was really seen as the big thing. So you've got Jackson, point guard of the future. You've got Drummond, who's your center of the future and your prospect of franchise player. And you've got KCP, who's, you know, only finished his second season, another super athletic player, a strong off, very strong off ball defender, not so good as an on ball defender, but still decent. And, you know, as you see this guy, it's like, okay, he only needs to get together as a three-point shooter. And then you've got a very solid starter. And you've got a gap at the forward positions. But you look at the roster, it's like, what does the roster need right now? The roster needs scores. I mean, the roster was very short on solid scores. And ideally, you want another go-to scorer because there's nobody on the team. I mean, Jackson is still untested as the primary option. And there's absolutely nobody else in the team who even remotely qualifies as a go-to scorer. Like of any ilk, number two, number three, nothing. So uh, Van Gundy goes into the draft. He says, I'm not going to draft based on position. I'm just going to draft the best available player. And he goes in and drafts Stanley Johnson, whose number one question mark is his offense. Strong defensive player at Arizona. But in terms of his offense, I mean, this guy was super, super, super physically strong, like really well built, was able to bully guys at the college level, just like he had in high school. Uh, You know, and... Just certain things don't translate to the NBA. He'd been a, a decent shooter, but on very low volume. And yeah, there, there were big questions about his offense. So yeah, he drafts Stanley Johnson. And on draft night, he raves about how Stanley wants to be great, basically saying this guy's work ethic is fantastic. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, you know, we'll see where it goes. You know, it's, uh, Johnson was uh, certainly a consensus top 10 prospect in the draft for what it's worth. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. So uh, he rounds out the offseason by 
signing Ursan Ilyasova to play power forward. Ilyasova at that time, very solid three-point shooter. And, you know, on defense, not so good, but absolutely amazing at drawing charges. I mean, that guy really had it in terms of drawing charges. And he also takes on a salary cap dump from the sons of Marcus Morris and Reggie Bullock. Now, this was the first of, excuse me, the second after Reggie Jackson of one of these like incredibly serendipitous trades where Van Gundy just gets super lucky with Jackson. It was, okay, well, here's a, here's a very good player and he's forced his way out and nuked his trade value. So we'll give it, you know, we'll give him to you for relatively cheap. In this case, it was, and that was Sam Presti doing just what he needed to do. Sam Presti is a very competent general manager. In this case, he's dealing with uh, Brian McDonough. And yes, I'm aware that there's also a hockey player named Ryan McDonough. This guy, too, is named Ryan McDonough, who is the very incompetent general manager of the Suns. Now, it's at this time, both Marcus Morris and Markeith Morris are on the Suns together. And those two are super, super, super close. Like, I think to this day, they both deposit their paychecks into a joint bank account. <laughs> so that absolutely super, super incredibly close. And McDonough decides that he wants to try to sign with Marcus Aldridge. And toward this end, he goes out and signs Tyson Chandler, Tyson Chandler, who had previously been like a monster defensive player, but at this point was very much in decline. So he goes out and signs Tyson Chandler with an eye toward trying to attract LaMarcus Aldridge, who I think at that time was a pretty overrated player. That's a different discussion. So he needs to clear cap space in this effort to sign LaMarcus Aldridge. So he decides to dump Bullock and Morris to the Pistons. And Van Gundy just sends back a player and a second round pick in return. And so McDonough, I mean, not only was it a f- just a, a complete dream that he'd ever drawn Marcus Aldridge in the first place, and not only was it a complete fantasy that the Suns would really be a contender, even if you were able to do so, but, uh, you know, those, those just weren't happening. <laughs> they weren't happening. And he also, in the process, like, severely pissed off Markeith, obviously. Because he, not only had he traded away Markeith's twin, but he and Marcus, uh, Markeith and Marcus, had signed very bargain contracts with the Suns in order to stay in Phoenix together. So they got screwed over. And he ended up trading away, McDonough ended up trading away Markeith at the deadline, I believe. Yeah, at the deadline of that year. And he got a first-round pick in return. So cool. That was a good return. But nonetheless, Van Gundy really benefited just from a serendipitous occurrence. It's basically a terrible GM saying, here, take some good players off my hands for nothing, basically nothing in return. So the Pistons go into the next season with a starting lineup of Jackson, KCP, Morris, Ilyasova, and Drummond, and Stanley Johnson coming off the bench, Anthony Tolliver coming off the bench. Brandon Jennings would come back in December from his Achilles injury, though he was never the same. He was never a, really a, a capable NBA player after that. And you have Jody Meeks, who got injured very early on, Steve Blake, uh, who would end up being the, the point guard, the backup point guard when Jennings was traded. And Bullock, who suffered from one of his characteristic, this is every year with the Pistons, a characteristic horrible start before becoming a decent player, though he wouldn't get into the lineup later. Then you have Darren Hilliard, who was Van Gundy's second-round draft pick. And just to spare whatever you know, further explanation on what happens, because I'm not going to talk about Michael Gabinajay, but what happened with all of Stan Van Gundy's second-round draft picks, this was Dimwitty, Hilliard, and Gabinajay. It's basically, well, I'm not going to give you much time. I'm not going to, you know, time to develop. I'm not going to really give you much time on the court at all. And I'm just going to discard you very quickly. That's what happened to all three of them. And my goodness, we're at 29 minutes already. Whatever the case. So you go into the season. The Pistons are doing better than they have in a very long time. And, you know, Jackson's the primary option. He's doing 
pretty darn well, really, borderline all-star. Like, I, I think that his performance in that season was a little bit inflated. It was done with an offense that absolutely played around him, very slow-paced offense. And uh, I just don't think that, I mean, a Pistons team where Reggie Jackson was dominating possession and your number one option was unlikely to go far, but... You know, he did well. Marcus Morris was playing well. KCP did all right. Ilya Sober was decent. And Drummond's had one of the most overrated campaigns I've ever seen. So anyway, you get to February around the trade deadline and Van Gundy benefits from his greatest lightning strike of serendipity that he would ever have. And Rob Hennigan, that very, that he would ever have as GM of the Pistons, rather. And this is Rob Hennigan, who's the completely incompetent GM of the Orlando Magic, who has Aaron Gordon coming up. And he had Tobias Harris. He had signed him in the 2015 offseason when the Pistons, by some accounts, had interest in Tobias. So the Magic had signed him to a pretty affordable front-loaded contract. So it would decline in terms of the salary he was paid three years, two, three, and four. And Tobias was a solid young player. And I mean, that contract would turn out to be an absolute bargain given the cap jump that was going to happen in 2016. But Hennigan, who is trading away this promising young player, just says, oh, well, just give me expiring contracts in return, which is, is one of the dumbest trades uh, of the past decade. I mean, basically like a, a solid, promising young player traded away for basic, for functionally nothing, for cap space. So Van Gundy, of course, is like, oh, absolutely, you know, take your, take your son Elias Sova and, and take uh, Brandon Jennings. And like, cool. Awesome, great. The Pistons now have like the best scorer on the team is Tobias Harris, who was very young at the time and very capable. You know, and, and if he's the best scorer on your team, you probably have issues. But nonetheless, I mean, that was a major coup for the Pistons. So they're 14-7 and seven the rest of the season. They probably would have missed the playoffs without him, especially because Jackson really slowed down, you know, down the stretch of the season. But the Pistons make it. They're the eighth seed. And, you know, they're an eighth seed with 44 wins. It's a, it's a pretty strong eighth seed. So you go into the postseason. They're up against the Cleveland Cavaliers, the ultimate championship Cleveland Cavaliers. Everybody on the team, aside from Jackson and Drummond, is shooting well. Everybody. And like everybody, even down to Stanley Johnson, who had really struggled across the season from the field. He'd been super inefficient. This was a series in which Stanley Johnson said that he was getting in LeBron's head, which you know nobody gets in LeBron's head, but he actually played pretty solid defense on him. And the Pistons get swept. It's a competitive sweep. I believe they could have won one or two games if Van Gundy had been coaching better. Now, this was the first point at which it became, in my opinion, clear that Van Gundy was had issues as a coach. He had been pretty mediocre throughout the season, you know, throughout uh, his second season with the Pistons, because he was just super rigid. You would only see him run like this super heavy, pick and roll heavy, slow paced offense. Uh, his defense was, you know, too much, too many double teams in the perimeter. And not really defending well against the drive and kick, whatever. But in this series, basically you saw that he was unwilling to coach Drummond. He was unwilling to coach Jackson. And, oh, I forgot about the Drummond post-ups. Right, this had happened the season before Van Gundy had decided, oh, we're going to make Andre Drummond a post player. And basically, we'll just feed him in the post. And, you know, we'll take these turnaround hooks. And, you know, who cares if he's absolutely terrible at them, to the, you know, to such an extent that he's more efficient from the free throw line, from which he is the worst free throw shooter in league history, than he is from the post. Whatever the case, Jackson is chucking, like just constantly chucking, shoots 16% from three. Drummond is having a super inefficient series. Everybody else is doing well. Van Gundy will not coach them. He just won't. And they pretty much just shoot the Pistons out of the series. The Pistons could have won a couple of those games. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, we've got a very young team. You know, they're pretty promising. You know, KCP, all these guys are young. 
Like Marcus Morris was the oldest one at 26. KCP is 22. Harris is 23. Drummond's 22. Jackson's 25. You got Stanley Johnson, who's only 19. And, you know, you're going to next season. Things are looking good. This is an up-and-coming team. And here's where things really go off the rails. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. If you listen to a lot of music audiobooks or podcasts like this one, consider checking out Raycon Wireless Earbuds. Raycon's everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever, with optimized gel tips for perfect in-ear fits. They're comfortable and won't budge. Raycons give you 8 hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, and come with 3 customizable sound profiles and noise isolation. Best of all, they're only half the price of other premium audio brands. Go to buyraycon.com today and use code TBPN15 to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's code TBPN15 at buyraycon.com to score 15% off. That's buyrecon.com, code TBPN15. Also, DraftKings. NFL action is in full swing at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We're talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If that's not enough, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Right now, for every leg you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. With payouts bigger than ever, why bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TBPN to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet in any football game. That's code TBPN, only a DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right, and back to the story at hand. So one thing that happens, Jackson's tendonitis really flares up. He has to go in for plasma-rich platelet therapy and misses the first 20 games in the next season. And the Pistons actually, first 20, yeah, 21 games. So the Pistons come out and, you know, they actually adapt pretty well. They signed, well, let's go to the offseason first. They signed Ish Smith. Uh, three years at $6 million a piece. And sort of puzzling signing because Ish can't shoot. Um, but Van Gundy certainly wasn't seeing where the league was going. And Ish was a decent point guard for the Pistons. He became less useful across the, the course of his contract. And then also Stan Van Gundy signs John Luer. And there's this huge cap jump. Luer gets $40 million, which is a terrible contract. Luer had never proven he could adequately space the floor. But whatever, you go into the season, Ish is starting as the point guard. He gradually gets better. Luer's actually pretty good off the bench, even though he still can't shoot. He can't shoot threes. But, you know, he's an efficient scorer, like 58% true shooting off the bench. Solid. And the Pistons just get better across the course of this. They're running a much more egalitarian offense that's focused in which Tobias Harris is pretty much the primary option. Marcus Morris, number two. Uh, the ball moves a lot more. And by the time Jackson comes back, I mean, they're doing really well. And then Jackson comes back and Van Gundy says, okay, well, you know, this is completely puzzling. And this was a season in which it became clear to me that Van Gundy was not fit to coach in what was really the developing NBA at the time. The Warriors had really spurred a, a tremendous change in, in 2015 and onward for really the spacing and efficiency era where you had to have the shooting, you had to be efficient. And Van Gundy would not coach shot selection. He did not know how to, to compose a roster that had enough shooting. And uh, he also was just a a very rigid coach. He just he couldn't make changes. He couldn't adapt. You know, he absolutely couldn't make changes across games. He didn't understand how to coach in the modern NBA. He would not hold his veterans accountable. He was way too hard on his young players. And he just had no idea what he was doing on offense. Ran a super inefficient offense and a not great defense. I mean, it was okay, but he made a lot of errors on that front too. So when Jackson came back, he said, okay, we're going back to last season's offense, which is kind of like a what are you doing sort of thing. It's like plug Jackson in. And just, you know, have him be part of what is developed into a fairly good offense. But no, he doesn't do that. So he brings Jackson in. He makes Jackson the center of the offense. And the offense tanks. And the defense tanks too because Jackson is playing pretty bad defense. And there's a lot of angst in the locker room. Players are pissed off at Jackson. 
and this is his players only meeting and Jackson responds by spending the next game just standing with his hands on his shoulders in the corner and refusing to just generally refusing to shoot. It's like, wow, man, he really showed them. And Van Gundy takes his side publicly. And like another thing, Jackson and Harris, who was the best scorer on the team from the moment he got on, were not coexisting well in the starting lineup. So if you're Stan Van Gundy, let's see, you have a choice. Uh, who gets sent to the bench? Is it your best scorer? And a guy, you know, who would actually ultimately in the season be the team's only reliable scorer? Or is it the point guard who's playing absolutely terrible basketball? Like, terrible, terrible basketball. It's like for Van Gundy, well, the choice is clear. You send Tobias to the bench. Okay, great. I mean, you already already had Ish Smith, who had played fairly well as a starting point guard. You know, well enough, at least, whereas Jackson had been terrible. And everything goes off the rails for the season at this point. John Bluer ends up in the starting lineup. He's terrible. That starting lineup of Jackson, KCP, uh, Drummond, Morris, and Bluer is you know, just like the lineup I spoke about earlier in the episode, one of the least efficient lineups in terms of true shooting over the last 15 years, like sub 50% true shooting, terrible. Uh, Drummond decides he doesn't care halfway through the season. He regresses. And, oh, I didn't mention why I thought that Drummond's season, previous season was overrated. Well, I'll just very briefly, sub 50% true shooting percentage, absolutely comically bad for for a traditional big, kind of like Matt defense. And I think, and also a very, very weak crop of centers. Like the best centers in the league that year, were DeMarcus Cousins, DeAndre Jordan, uh, the corpse of Dwight Howard, uh, Brooke Lopez, Hassan Whiteside, and, and Drummond. So uh, Drummond, I think, largely got into the All-Star game and got his All-NBA berth on the perception that he was a real up-and-comer because of his big raw stats and because of the fact that the people doing the voting weren't really yet aware of the you know, the inefficient stat pattern and not particularly effective player he was. I think he was being given the benefit of the doubt at that point. And the next year, uh, really the new crop of, you know, the new generation of centers really start coming on. Gobert, Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic. Yeah, so that was Drummond's one and only All-NBA berth. And the only time he made the All-Star game without being a replacement. Uh, so, yeah, Drummond decides, he, he hardcore regresses and also decides halfway through the season he doesn't care. Uh, KCP hardcore regresses is just probably one of the worst players in the league in the second half of the season, or one of the worst starters, certainly. Marcus Morris becomes a chucker, one of the least efficient players in the league, and KCP is one of the least efficient volume shooters in the league. Drummond is one of the least efficient volume shooters in the league. Jackson should not be playing. Like, he's clearly injured. He's bad on offense. He is a catastrophic defensive liability. The Pistons are enormously better without him, Um, but he stays as a starting point guard for 50 games, I believe. Yeah, around 50 games. And the season goes in the crapper. The best players in the team are playing off the bench. That's Ish Smith and Tobias Harris. And Stanley Johnson has a horrendously inefficient second season. But, you know, he plays solid defense. And actually, in the month of February, you know, amongst, um, amongst you know, three-man lineups. And three-man lineups, you know, are always kind of like a, a hazy thing. But if you look at, at that point in the month of February in 2017, the three-man lineup of Harris... Smith and Johnson, I believe, had the highest net rating in the league. It's like, okay, Stanley still has issues, but it's basically just another case. It doesn't help that that Stan Van Gundy is incredibly hard on him. Like, basically, there was this one game, I I think it was against the Suns, in which Stanley committed one defensive blunder and basically got exiled for the next three games, you know, for an error that the veterans committed on a regular basis. But anyway, the best players are playing off the bench. Uh, and the bench crew is decent between Ish Smith, uh, Tobias Harris, uh, Stanley Johnson, and Aaron Baines. But I mean Van Gundy, who will just never, you know, won't make changes, won't hold his his, uh, his veterans accountable, 
is terrible at getting the best out of his better players and, and really just favors his worst players over them, the season goes in the crapper. I mean, he eventually, when it is absolutely too late, decides to, to bench Jackson and then deactivate him. But it's too late at that point. So the Pistons finish in the low lottery. Another bad place to be. And things are not looking so hopeful now. So then we go into what is the final offseason of Stan Van Gundy's career with the Pistons. And what does he do? So he has an $80 million offer on the table to KCP, who has heard a little bit too much about how like the Nets are going to send him a max offer and says it's worth nowhere near what he wants, which is ridiculous because he was worth nowhere near, nowhere near a max contract and ended up leaving quite a bit of money on the table. Um, you know, but it benefits the Pistons. Uh, KCP's greed and ego saved the, Pist- saved the Pistons, saved Stan Van Gundy for an- another bad contract. So in any case, we go into the draft, in the 2017 draft, and this is a fairly infamous moment. So the Pistons at this stage are capped out. They're not going to be able to add guys from free agency. And nobody's significant, rather. And this is not a team that has a very, it's like a super high ceiling at this point. You want to swing for upside. And Van Gundy instead decides to go with a familiar commodity. And, uh, oh my goodness, how did I forget Stanley Ellenson in 2016? Okay, well, (laughs) Stanley Ellenson in 2016. Uh, So this was just another example of how little, uh, just Van Gundy was a terrible drafter. We know that. And, um, yeah, I also forgot forgot Spencer Dimwitty. My goodness, I've just been talking for too long, I hate to put it that way. Um, But... Spencer Dinwiddie, he basically just gave away for nothing. And Spencer hasn't been good at that point, but he has gone on about how Van Gundy never gave him a chance to really a chance to develop with the Pistons. And Dinwiddie ended up being a, a fairly good NBA player. He still is. Though he had a really bad season last year with the with the Wizards. So Alan Sim was a guy with no NBA upside. You know, he did not have any, he had very, very below average athleticism. He could not play defense. Um he was never really likely to be able to attack off the dribble. He just had very, the only way he was ever going to be able to stay in the NBA was as, as a role player off the bench who was extremely efficient. And he couldn't do that. He also couldn't shoot. He was never able to shoot uh, during his, his season in Marquette, his one NCAA season in Marquette either. And there was a reason he dropped to where the Pistons, uh, out of the top 10 to where the Pistons could select him. And he was selected ahead of two 3 and D wings, athletic 3 and D wings. And Van Gundy just didn't get it. There's a lot that Van Gundy did not understand about how to build a team in the NBA in the modern NBA, rather. In any case, so, uh, yeah, so we go into this draft, and Van Gundy chooses to go. You have Donovan Mitchell and Luke Kennard, the two obvious choices. Uh, Mitchell is less proven, much higher ceiling, uh, and Kennard is maybe a little more proven, much you know, in a higher floor, but it's a much, much lower ceiling. And he decides to go with Kennard. And at, the, at this point, it's like, what are you doing? Because, you know, if you want the Pistons to do anything, you have to take a chance on upside. And to, instead, he takes a chance on... He doesn't take a chance. He goes with the safe pick. And Kennard's a strong shooter, but he's a role player. Pistons don't need another role player. And you could say, well, he was just told they needed to make the playoffs. But then you have, like, you still have an $80 million offer on the table for KCP. And then Van Gundy, at the beginning of free agency, goes and signs Langston Galloway, who's just another player he was, you know, he had talked about wanting to get a three or $21 million contract. So you've already got Kennard, like, third on the depth chart at his position. Not likely to be playing him. It was the same thing you signed John Moore the year before when you just drafted Ellenson. And they were both bad, but whatever. Like the idea was, oh, you just trade Bluer if he's bad. And it's like, okay, well, somebody has to want to trade for him. Or you trade Bluer rather if Ellenson is good. Somebody has to want to trade for him. Another issue with Van Gundy's mindset. Yeah, so he signs a player. He already, he already has a big offer to another player at shooting guard. Uh, he signs another shooting guard. And then 
you know, and he's got Kennard as third string. Now, KCP, the Pistons ultimately get to take advantage of the Celtics being in a cap crunch. They want to sign Gordon Hayward. They need to dump salary. And so the Pistons pick up Avery Bradley and renounce KCP. It's like, cool, that's a good trade. I mean, Avery Bradley was an overrated defender, but a solid defender and, and a strong three-point shooter. And you bring back Anthony Tolliver that, Tolliver that summer also. And Tolliver's just a solid role player. Everybody likes the guy. Um, or he was a solid role player. Everybody liked the guy. You know, good veteran presence, solid three-point shooter. So you go into the season with a, a lineup of Jackson, Bradley, Johnson, Harris, and Drummond. And also critically over the course of the offseason, I think the assistant coaches and Jeff Van Gundy, Stan's brother, really give him some advice on, you know, they help to formulate a new offense, a motion offense that uses Drummond as a secondary playmaker at the top of the key rather than having him post up because he was a horrendous post player. And it was a less predictable offense and hopefully a more efficient offense and so on and so forth. So the Pistons go into the season and they have, this is this is the best roster that the Pistons had fielded in a season, I mean, we're not at opening night yet, but who knows how this upcoming roster will do. This upcoming roster is about ceiling. They're still developing. But to date, this is the best opening night roster the Pistons have fielded since 2008. They go in. They're 14-6 and six with this new offense. The team is really gelling. Uh, they beat the the Warriors. Like, the Clippers were unbeaten at, like after six games. I think the Pistons beat them. The next night, they play against the Warriors, uh, like the, the Durant Warriors, and, and they beat them. It's a great game. Like they're being good teams, and at the beginning, I believe it was near the end of November, they beat the Celtics, who were another who were just doing great at the time, and everything looks good. But there are some warning signs because teams are starting to catch on, starting to catch on to the Pistons' offense and Van Gundy, who called all of his plays always from this very short list of plays, is doing nothing to change it. And also, like the plays he was calling weren't particularly efficient. Like a lot of long twos relied way too much on Avery Bradley, who was never particularly good. You know, was never a great scorer. He's not a go-to guy. And like just some example, and he's just punching way above his weight, like unsustainable numbers. Uh, Harris is doing super well. Like he'd become a much better three-point shooter thanks to corrective eye surgery and practice. And Harris is a super hard worker. Uh, Jackson is doing all right. Drummond's doing, you know, decently well. And like based on the, you know, the, the contract that he has, and I forgot to mention he was signed to a max contract. Goodness. I'm just all over the place in this episode. So, yeah, things start to go off the rails. But, like, as an example of one of the plays, like, uh, one of them had Harris, who's the team's best scorer, set an off-ball screen so that Avery Bradley could curl around and get receive a handoff from Drummond and take a long two from just inside the three-point line. This is a terrible play. You're basically taking an awful mid-range shooter. Uh, you're using your best scorer to set a screen an off-ball screen for an, so that an awful mid-range shooter can come and take the least efficient shot in basketball. And Van Gundy continued to not really prize Tobias Harris how he should. Harris was still the best player. Van Gundy was very intent on playing through his guards. Harris never, ever got the role that he deserved on the team. Though Tobias Harris is your number one option. is probably taking you nowhere. But nonetheless, you would have had better success doing it that way. So first thing that goes wrong, other teams figure out the offense. Van Gundy does nothing to change it. Second thing that goes wrong, Avery Bradley hurts his groin, and that's really where the Pistons started to regress uh, because Van Gundy really relied on him and continued to rely on him with this idiotic handoff offense. So uh, the Pistons start losing games. They don't lose them by much. You could say that coaching is really the difference there. And then, and, and like, yeah, Avery Bradley is terrifically inefficient, like one of the worst starters in the league. He's, he's still having the majority... You know, so many calls played for him by, excuse me, plays called for him by Van Gundy. And then Reggie Jackson gets injured. 
near the end of December. Great three ankle sprain. He's out for a while. So Van Gundy turns even leans even more heavily upon Bradley. And these hand like these handoff plays he's running are less efficient than drum and post ups, which were comically inefficient. And Tobias is like there's this myth that he was the primary option. He never was. I mean, he was run on inefficient two-point sets. The offense was never played around him throughout the entirety of his time with the Pistons. And uh, yeah, the Pistons are, I think, go like three of three and twelve after Jackson's injury. And the only sensible thing to do at this point is you say, like, okay, the season's lost. Let's tank it out. You know, we'll just have Jackson not come back this season, which would have been the the ideal thing to do anyway, because he really needed the time to recover. And, you know, we trade Bradley, you know, trade whoever else, and we just tank for a good pick and a super strong draft. And when I personally saw it, like a tweet that, you know, Woj said, oh, the Pistons have made Avery Bradley available in trade talks. I was like, good, that's what we're doing. And Van Gundy throws a curveball and comes back with the exact opposite, which is to trade Avery Bradley, Tobias Harris, in a very, very, very lightly protected 2018 first round draft pick and a second round pick uh, as well, I think, in... In 2018, too, I've tried to track this down, but it's uh, in in the past. But I'm I'm not sure exactly where it went. Um, I think it was 2019 second round pick, yeah, but I'm not sure exactly where it went after that. It's proven difficult to trace. So he trades all that for Blake Griffin. So Blake Griffin had signed a max contract in the previous off season. Now the Clippers front office including Jerry West, did not want to re-sign Griffin. They just wanted to rebuild. They said, it, we shouldn't max. This guy's too injury prone. We're never going to build a good team around, you know, a contender around him. Steve Ballmer hadn't wanted to tank, and he said, no, we're going to re-sign Griffin. They gave him this mock jersey retirement, complete with a, co- with a choir and whatnot, and he re-signed there. Uh, Ballmer came around to his front office's point of view soon afterward, but, uh, you know, and at that point, it's like, how are we going to uh, offload this guy who's got four and a half years left in a max contract and is very injury prone? Like, who's going to take him? Well, the, you know, there's a negative value contract and the, and the Clippers wanted to be done with him. And the answer was that Stan Van Gundy was desperate to save his job, just like Dumars had been desperate to save his own job back in, in 2013. And uh, a fun fact, here's one. So uh, the Pistons traded, uh, Dumars traded Brandon Knight and Chris Middleton to the Bucks. Like this was during, uh, during the course of Dumars' last gasp effort to save his own job. And they traded them for Brandon Jennings. They traded Brandon Jennings alongside Ursan Eliasova for Tobias Harris. And then Tobias Harris was used by Stan Van Gundy in his last gap effort to save his own job. So you trade for Griffin, and you're capped out. There's no way to improve the team from here. This team has far too little shooting. It is super weak on the wing. It has really only one strong interior scorer, only one strong creator, and that is Blake Griffin. And you can't really do anything to, to improve the team in the next couple of years, even if he's healthy which, as we know, he was not. So uh, now you've got a starting lineup of Ish Smith, Reggie Bullock, Stanley Johnson, Blake Griffin, and Andre Drummond. And, of course, this team is a mess. Like, they win their first four games, but they're playing all four games at home against teams that are exhausted, like teams that are playing an away game, second night in a back-to-back, and for the third time in, in four nights. And then they start playing against actually difficult opposition, and it's very, very ugly. Van Gundy is still coaching terribly like his way of trying to make Drummond and Jackson Drummond and Griffin work together is oh we're going to put Drummond back in the post it's like dude Drummond should be taking zero post-ups a game but he didn't know what else to do again just a coach who was completely out of his depth and ultimately the Pistons it would take them until March so close to two months to finally win a game against a team that wasn't either tanking or exhausted again those criteria 
away game, second night of a back-to-back, third game in four nights. And that was against the Lakers, who were missing Brandon Ingram uh, and I believe Josh Hart, who were a bad team. And it was Griffin's last game of the season. Uh, Van Gundy also brought Reggie Jackson back uh, way too early for the sake of winning meaningless games. Jackson would end up needing to take the entire summer to rehab, and he wasn't back into game shape the next season for about half the season. So, yep, season goes on. Pistons lose. Van Gundy gets fired. And then Dwayne Casey comes in. Uh, Ed Stefanski manages, you know, comes in as a consultant to help with the coaching search and the GM search and ends up hiring himself basically as general manager. He did okay for the Pistons. I'm not, I'm not too unhappy about that in retrospect. Um, but that's it for the Stan Van Gundy era. Um, it was quite unsuccessful. The Pistons ended up basically needing to do a, f- you know, they would do kind of like, uh, you know, make many personnel changes in the year after that and, and going into the 2019 season. But this was never ever going to be a contender. And as we know, the team got legitimately, like literally completely overhauled by Troy Weaver uh, just two years later. So um, all the mistakes he made, I mean, number one, trying to build your team around Drummond, who, who never had the skill to be a number one option and never and, and really had to be built around in order to make him worthwhile as a max contract player. But was if you build around him, you're not going to win. And, uh, and and had his big issues in, in terms of his mentality, which is probably his number one issue, though he's never going to be a great scorer because he has no touch. And he's never going to be a decent scorer, rather. It's okay to not be a great scorer, but he was never going to be a decent scorer because he has such bad touch. And if he committed himself fully to defense, maybe he could have been a great defensive player, though you know, he went into physical decline at the age of 27. Uh, yeah, so there was that. He couldn't coach in the modern NBA. Van Gundy could not. He did not know how to build a team in the modern NBA to have enough shooting. And uh, he made a lot of bad decisions in the draft. He made some really bad personnel decisions. He got to where he was, I think, because he got very, very fortunate. You know, that when the team peaked, the team peaked in 2015, 2016, he had gotten exceedingly fortunate in in the personnel who had become available to him by trade and, and had legitimately had three very advantageous trades just thrown into his lap. But uh, from then on, from the 2016 offseason onward, he basically just only made bad decisions. And that culminated in him making a desperate trade for for Blake Griffin. Uh, That was terrible for the team. And you could say, okay, maybe. Maybe it was ultimately a decent trade. And, you know, not that it was actually a good trade at the time, but that it helped the Pistons to a point where they decided to rebuild. And, and, you know, and maybe this was a a key thing. And and Tom Gora seeing, well, you have Blake Griffin, who's really a huge name, and he has an excellent season, and you still get slaughtered in the first round of the playoffs in 2019. And then he gets injured the next season. But but you see that just having, uh, but just having a a star and a big name is not necessarily going to make you a good team. And and that maybe not allowing the team to rebuild is a bad thing, you know. And, and he ultimately came along, came around to that. Though I think that Ed Stefanski really played a big role in that because the next season you saw Stefanski saying, "Well, we're not making win now trades. Trade away Reggie Bullock instead of, uh, you know, paying to keep him in the off season, which they may not have been able to do." So. Uh, Really unsuccessful. I mean, it was it was a period in Pistons history that looked hopeful, um, but ultimately, um, you know, there was. Uh, I hate to quote Shakespeare. I'm not big on theater. I really don't like theater. Nothing against those who do, but I think it's like one of my least favorite things. I was going to come up with this, you know, something rotten in the state of Michigan. <laughs> I don't know, pretty lame, but yeah, uh, I think that the the Pistons. You know, it looked like they were heading in the right direction. 
and a lot of things went badly after that after that um, 2015 2016 season. But you also had a guy who was you know who was in charge of personnel, didn't know how to put it together, did, did not know how to put a good team together, and he was also a coach who was not fit uh, to, to be leading a team and giving it its best chance to succeed in an NBA that was developing very fast and past his capabilities. So that is the Stan Van Gundy era. So if you've made it all the way to 57 minutes of me talking about the Stan Van Gundy era, I suppose I commend you. I intended for this to be like a 30-minute episode, but there was just a lot to talk about in any case. So that's going to be it for this episode. Uh, like I said, have some season preview content coming up for the next couple episodes and uh, before preseason comes along. And until then, thank you all for listening. Catch you in the next episode.